Under the Helmet. You'll do your thing, all right? Don't be nervous, okay? The show that looks at long-term player value in fantasy football. It's the moment right here. We're going to have to decide what, what type of team we want to be. Building Dynasties each and every week. I don't even know your name. What's your name? Chad Parsons. I'm telling you, man, you're leading the league in hydration. I got a Dynasty team reaping rewards for the next decade. Katie Flower. You may beat me, but you will not outwork me. Tim Torch. There's only one winner, Chad. Find their written and premium audio content at uthdynasty.com. Playing it safe in Dynasty means you're going to lose. Stop talking about it, man. Let's get this going right now. Welcome to Under the Helmet, looking at some long-term player value in fantasy football. I am Chad Parsons. She is Katie Flower, official show of UTHDynasty.com. And we've got an exciting series going in this one. And we are going in the Wayback Machine to 2015. And uh, one of my watches on TV, if, if this movie comes on, is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Um, and it's pretty much two hours, Katie, of, of action. So uh, I always like to go back and look at what songs and, and what movies were popular in 2015, 2014, as we've been going through this series. But one thing we don't have to uh, wonder about, because both of us very active in Dynasty back in 2015, and what a class it was we were talking about before the show. So this goes back, looks at the class about some lessons learned, the prospects, the targets, and uh, what happened with now we're getting into a legitimate number of players from each class that are still working their profiles in the NFL. Yeah, uh, it's, it's exciting times. This was my second full year of Dynasty. I remember it very crystal clear because I was also now in my I guess half year of Debbie. I started Debbie late in the 2014 season, but still it was part of the 2014 season. My first ever Debbie pick was Todd Gurley. And Todd Gurley went in the NFL draft. We're going to start with running backs like we have in the other classes. We have not had in the first two, 2013, 2014, didn't have a first round running back. But here we got a pair with Todd Gurley at 10th overall to the St. Louis Rams and then Melvin Gordon at 15th overall to the San Diego Chargers. And so besides that, we also had two second round picks. TJ Yeldon out of Alabama went to Jacksonville. Amar, uh, Amir Abdullah went to Detroit in late in the second round. And then we had four promising third round picks, Tevin Coleman, Duke Johnson, David Johnson, and Matt Jones. And I remember listening to Under the Helmet. This was also 2015 was when you and I corresponded quite a bit. And I ended up by the end of 2015, Tim and I were co-hosts on the Under the Helmet podcast. So it was a big, exciting year for me for Dynasty. But I remember very vividly, Amari Cooper and Todd Gurley were the top two and it was a question, do you want a wide receiver? Do you want a running back? They were split between the 101 in many, many drafts. Now, if it was a super flex, then Jameis Winston or Marcus Mariota was more likely to go first. But Todd Gurley went 101 more than half of the time and ended up being a stud, although his career was ended short because of injury. But for all the times that he did play, man, he gave you the juice. And I remember also that Melvin Gordon was not a metric marvel. 
we had question marks about him. The projection model didn't have him highly ranked. You like TJ Yeldon. The projection model liked TJ Yeldon more. He ended up being okay for his first couple seasons, but then he dropped off quite a bit. So there's a lot of storylines. But another big storyline from this running back class was towards the late part of the first, early part of the second, managers had to make the choice between Amir Abdullah, Tevin Coleman, or David Johnson. And you were touting David Johnson big time, big time. So if you got Todd Gurley at the 101 and you had the 201 and you got David Johnson and you took him over Tevin Coleman or Amir Abdullah, you were cooking with sauce after that. Yeah, I remember David Johnson, and it's a profile we still look at today, which is the bigger back that can move and can catch. And when you see these bigger guys that are 215, 220 plus, ideally, that can catch the ball really well. And David Johnson had an 88% receiving score coming out of Northern Iowa. And there was a lot of tape of him running wheel routes, running circle routes, and doing dominant stuff, albeit at a lower level in the receiving game. And for a guy that's his size, Again, he had some warts, you know, a guy that didn't have the highest rushing score per se. But a lot of my research, even back then, was that even if you have a lower rushing score, as long as you have the requisite size, you that you can sort of be okay, good enough at the NFL level in, in terms of running between the tackles. Now, I don't know if any of us, even myself, expected David Johnson to be as good as he was as a full-fledged you know, three down workhorse type back in his peak early years there. But, uh, and again, still in the league, but we were excited about the opportunity for him to be a big back and can move and can catch a bunch of passes in the NFL. And he was 13 points per game or higher in his first three seasons, including year two, which was just a mammoth breakout season. Um, you know, basically on par with, with some of Todd Gurley's better seasons in the NFL as well. And, and for all the Todd Gurley hand-wringing by the mid-career and, oh, he's falling off at such a, an early age, the dude had six fantasy starter seasons. He had back-to-back number one overall adjusted points per game finishes. So, I mean, you can look at his best three, four years, which were his first three or four years, and say he's on par with almost all of the, the best running backs over the past you know, 10, 15 years in terms of that level of career start. And Gurley was just, he checked everything. I mean, he was dominant rushing score guy, dominant receiving score guy, 222 pounds, tested well, barely 21 years old. And he was a big time recruit at a big time program. I mean, he had everything and yet goes 10 overall in the draft. And like you said, there was still some ambiguity on who was going to go 101, even though Gurley went more than Amari Cooper. So, and the one thing I do regret is the Melvin Gordon not having enough shares or not giving the proper respect to a guy that went in the mid first round by the NFL. And, and so that's one thing when a round one running back goes and, uh, you know, we'll get there eventually with the, uh, with Christian McCaffrey's class, you know, being another one where using this rule and principle would have helped. 
that Melvin Gordon was one that, oh, you know, Wisconsin backs that moniker. And, you know, he was maybe a little older than we would have liked uh, for ideal purposes, but it, it was the receiving game. Is he going to be able to catch the ball? Well, in retrospect, he caught a ton of passes. That was a non-issue in the NFL. And Melvin Gordon, again, just getting the pedigree. If you can get a first-round running back, and we have some classes where there was a bunch of them, but uh, generally, there may only be one or two at most that you can't let that that second guy fall, especially when they don't have uh, size concerns. It's not like that he had overt athleticism concerns. And so Melvin Gordon is the one looking back where he was good enough to say, let's not fade this profile because there should have been, even though I was touting uh, TJ Yeldon, I mean, that's a pretty substantial difference in historical probabilities when you're talking about 15 overall versus 30, 36 overall at the running back position when Melvin Gordon, again, didn't ha- really have enough warts that that we should have legitimate concerns. Yeah. And my question mark on Melvin Gordon, I wasn't the metrics person, but I was the film person. And I remember watching a lot of his film in uh, his college games. He liked to bounce everything outside whether it was uh, just a run or the passing and he never did anything really up the middle. So my biggest, my biggest concerns were in the NFL, will he be a traditional bell cow back that can carry the ball down after down up the middle? And then, yeah, you're going to be able to bounce the ball outside every now and again, but against NFL talent and the speed that he was going to face, my biggest question was, you know, if he bounces, if that's his tendency is to bounce the ball outside every single time he touches the ball in college, yeah. what's he going to do in the NFL? So between your metrics and the film and looking back in hindsight, yeah, he, he should have been more on the radar. I remember getting some shares of him because I had a pick in that range. And, you know, at, at some point you got to say, okay, this guy's way better than the other alternatives. I just got to take him and hope for the best because One, nothing is exact anyway. There's, there's no exact, if there was, it wouldn't yeah. be a fun game. I mean, we all, we all have speculation for a certain thing. It doesn't always pan out. One, one quick thing, and I probably should have led with this, was just the, the draft class strength. And I've said before, you know, looking at the top 100 at wide receiver, at, at running back, is a good litmus test for adjusted draft uh, position, which looks at the, the metric profiles, but also looks at how highly and how many go in the class. And for running back, you know, we, we, we lamented that 2013, 2014, we didn't get round one running backs. Well, 2015, we did. And this actually turned out largely because you get those first rounders added in. This was the best class since 2008. That that lauded 2008 class, the one with Jonathan uh, Jonathan Stewart, Chris Johnson, and others. Um, but 2015, so this was the best running back group in quite a while. When you look at draft position and profiles, and sure enough, I mean, when when you look back, we had I think it's somewhere in the eight or nine uh, running back range that actually in the top four or five rounds of the draft 
produced a fantasy starter season. And then you had other hits later on, you know, guys that had their moments, you know, UDFAs like Thomas Rawls, you had Raheem Mostert in this class. And I know it took those guys. Uh, Rawls was more of a fast starter. Mostert took a while. But the point is, this was a very good class in terms of even the guys that that didn't hit. I mean, Amir Abdul, I always think about the preseason, uh, preseason 40-yard run or whatever it was, heard around the world where it just boosted him up. And I remember those August after that run that leading into the season, he, there were times he was going 104, 105 of, of the rookie drafts that were going very late there. And he was getting some redraft love as well. And I even think back to Mac Jones, uh, sorry, Matt Jones, who uh, really didn't have anything but moments, but there were times where he was worth, as opposed to his third or fourth round pr- price tag initially, that when he popped off for a hundred yard game or something, he, and he was a lead back for Washington, worth maybe a, a first round pick or certainly a second to first upgrade at his peak as a, another bigger back that uh, did have profit potential from where you drafted him. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of guys in this class that were good values. Duke Johnson, a lot of people had him high hopes. He was an early second round pick um, and he ended up having 96 games and counting to his career. Jay Ajayi, from Boise mm. State, he he was in the mold of uh, uh, muscle hamster Doug Doug uh, what's his name Martin M- Doug Martin yeah thank you and Jay Ajayi was a big thing but he only had forty five games to his career but of those forty five games he had a pretty good impact fantasy wise if you bought him in the early second and sold him at his peak you did pretty well uh, but that's the thing that's the tricky thing with running backs. Do you keep them? Do you trade them? It depends on the pedigree. And he didn't really have the strong pedigree. He was much later in the NFL draft. Then you got guys like, I remember David Cobb. He had like a sluggish, very, um, his profile was not strong. He only ended up having seven games, but because he was drafted with Tennessee and they had the Bishop Sankey fiasco, people thought, okay, well, David Cobb is a bigger back. He's probably going to be the one. Mid-second round pick, not a big investment, but there were a lot of wide receivers that were actually better values. Buck Allen, Javorius Allen, uh, Mike Davis, another couple late second round picks that were decent profile running backs that never really gave you the, the juice that you were looking for. Cameron Artis Payne, another one out of Auburn, and he had some games here and there. Zach Center was another late round sleeper that a lot of people size, decent speed, played for Detroit. They only had Theo Riddick at the time, but Theo Riddick was tearing it up at this point. So people thought, well, Zach Zenner should be the guy. And I know that um, Matt Wallman really liked double Z. So there, there were a lot of different flavors. Ty Montgomery, T.Y. Montgomery, who converted from wide receiver in college to playing running back for Green Bay. And people were like, okay, he's going to play running back, but yet he's got wide receiver chops. That's a great combo. And that's late in the third, another really good value. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that we, we always talk about is go towards what the strength of the class is. You can choose to fade uh, fade that pick or or part of your rookie draft no matter what. If you find value trading out or trading down or trading for a player. But again, I mean, this was projected to be a good running back back class when you saw the number of of players that went in the top 100, which we had 
uh, eight. You had a number that were interesting profiles early-ish in the first, you know, four, round four, round five. And so this was one you could definitely gravitate towards and build up your cupboard, your, your taxi squad and your developmental squad for, uh, for your players there on your dynasty roster. The same thing applied to wide receiver as well. It was a very good class. Uh, 2014 was a banner year, but 2015 wasn't that far behind. So it was another good class in that regard. So these are things that, again, by the time you get to your rookie draft, if it occurs after the NFL draft, you're going to have things uh, from UTH like this of just, is it a good class? Where does it stack up compared to the year before, the last three or four years? And just get a sense of, all right, so in general, when I'm going into my rookie draft, independent of anything else, all right, well, you know, break ties for this position or it's not really great in any regard, you got to find big time value or when in doubt, trade the pick. It can give you some nice indicators like that, just about the class as a whole. Yeah. And this class had some guys, Todd Gurley, Melvin Gordon, and then of course, Amari Cooper, who were three out of the top four consistently in non-superflex rookie drafts. Two years later in 2017, startups... Amari Cooper was ADP of six, Todd Gurley, ADP of 17.8, and Melvin Gordon, 17.5. So they're all three still considered first or second round startup picks. 2020, Amari Cooper was ADP of 28.5, Todd Gurley, 56, Melvin Gordon, 62. And so again, five years into it, and these guys are still the top three in the class in ADP. You don't see that a ton. Yeah. The last thing I have for running back is we had 15 running backs from this class that had their, their peak season in the NFL was at least top 45. So that's 15 guys that you say were at least on the backup running back with, with uh, upside possibilities for the aggregate points per game for the whole year. So 15 of them, that shows big time depth. And again, I mean, just those big hits at the top uh, with guys like David Johnson, Melvin Gordon, Todd Gurley, uh, most notably at the position. But like you mentioned with Ajayi and Duke Johnson held on for quite a while with a good floor, never really came through with the big ceiling. But I, I mean, and later, later pop guys like Raheem Mostert and Mike Davis, I'm sure they changed teams two, three, four times by the time that they actually came up, you know, to, to relevancy for, for lineup considerations later in their career. But, but yeah, I mean, really impressive running back class. Yeah. And my last thought on the running back class, if you look at value, it's hard to say, oh, I've got value with Todd Gurley at the 101 or the 102. I've got value with Melvin Gordon at the 103 or the 104. But Todd Gurley started 88 regular season NFL games. 22 weeks, he was in the top five. That's 25% of the time he was a top five running back. 46 times out of 88, 52% of the time he was a top 12, an RB1. 73% of the time, the man was money. And 64 times out of 88, he was a top 24 on at least an RB2 scoring for fantasy purposes. Melvin Gordon ended up with 98 games and still counting 16 times in the top five, 16%. So a little bit below 
or 39% of the time he was at least an RB1, 63% of the time he was at least an RB2. So those two guys returned really good value compared to TJ Yeldon, Tevin Coleman, even David Johnson. As much as we loved him, he had a great early start, but he hasn't done a whole lot since. But there's, as, as far as value, those two, Todd Gurley and Melvin Gordon, were the best values in this class. Yep, NFL got it right. <laughs> yep. All right, so, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned Amari Cooper. And, yeah. and so wide receiver, this was another strong class, as I mentioned. it. And now it wasn't as good as 2014 when you look at the profiles yeah. and the draft position in combination. But this was a class that the NFL spent. They spent on this one. Now, they didn't get quite the results for sure. But yeah. I mean, we're talking about uh, nine guys in the top 50. So early, early-ish second round and the first round, uh, a lot of guys went in this one. Just results were different. Yeah, a lot of guys went, but there were a lot more busts. We had Amari Cooper, fourth overall to Oakland. Kevin White, seventh overall in the first round. Devontae Parker, 14th overall to Miami. Nelson Aguilar, 20th overall to Philadelphia. Brashad Perriman, 26 overall to Baltimore, Philip Dorsett, another first round pick, 29th overall to Indianapolis. Then we had two second round picks, Devin Smith for the New York Giants. He was small. He was fast. A lot of people liked him. We didn't really, the profile well, didn't he, he went fit. to the Jets originally. What? He was drafted by the Jets. That's what I said. Jets. Oh, you said, you said Giants, so. Oh, no, I thought I said Jets. No, you're right. Anyway, Doriel Green Beckham, big, <laughs> huge guy. But he had a lot of off-field issues in college. He went 40th overall, second round of Tennessee. Then we had a sea of third-round picks. So, again, in the top 100, we had Tyler Lockett, Jalen Strong, Chris Conley, Sammy Coates, and T.Y. Montgomery. And T.Y. Montgomery was a positional convert. He went from wide receiver to running back. But then we had a lot of sleepers, guys that were big profiles but didn't quite have the production in college, so they slipped. Guys like Stephon Diggs, Tyler Lockett. Uh, you had another positional convert. Darren Waller went in the sixth round as a wide receiver but finally converted to tight end, and that's where he settled in and has had the biggest contribution. So I'm not going to really talk about Darren Waller as a wide receiver, but Amari Cooper – and Todd Gurley, as I had mentioned before, were either the 101, 102 in a non-super flex. And then if you did have a Debbie depleted draft, Kevin White and Devontae Parker were usually the top two picks there. Kevin White was a bust. Doriel Green Beckham was a bust. Jalen Strong was a bust. They were all top 12 in rookie drafts. Kevin White being 103-ish range, Doriel Green Beckham being in the five or six, and Jalen Strong being at the end of the first round of rookie drafts. But there was a lot of question marks after Amari Cooper, and Devontae Parker's had a steady career. He's, he's not really been a great fantasy asset, though. Yeah, I had a, a couple comments from uh, from UTH uh, subscribers and VIPs that I just asked. You know, what do you remember about the 2015 class? And and one one uh, one, I think at that point in time, not a UTH subscriber said, you know, I had the top three uh, rookie picks, and I took Amari Cooper, Kevin White, and Devontae Parker. <laughs> so so missed out like you like you mentioned on those early running backs because again back then oh we're coming off the heels of 2014 life is good you build around wide receivers 
And uh, it's not that they didn't have pedigree. Parker went in the top 15 and, and White was in the top 10. But, uh, you know, again, saying no to round one running backs is generally not a good idea uh, when you have the crack at them in rookie drafts. And the other thing, which was, uh, and I kind of forgot this, kind of thinking back and uh, to it, and these shows are really great for that, is the Doriel Green-Beckham hype was just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because he was a five-star guy, if memory serves, he, yeah. and he transferred to Missouri, right? That was like, um, yeah. was Six it acadi- academic or off the field maybe. stuff of like, uh, but he was a, or, or maybe he chose to go there because of other reasons, but no, but yeah, there I were mean, a lot of off field issues. Yeah. But he was that, he was that, oh my gosh, he's so, he's so big and yet he's still athletic. Uh, he tested great, but just, he never quite put together. I mean, I was looking back at his profile and he just did not produce, like, especially if you were looking at it now, I mean, he produced to a requisite level, but not one that would be like, oh my goodness, he's a superstar and he's just beasting beyond his, it, it was flash induced in college. And he turned out to just be a, a complete and utter quick flame out. I don't even think he got four or five years in the, in the NFL of memory. 31 series. NFL regular season starts. Yeah. And, and he, he, again, a lot of people said he was maybe one of, if not the most talented guy in the class. And yet he drifts to 40 overall and, and behind a litany of questionable picks like Dorsett and Devin Smith. And, you know, Perriman was very boom bust, you know, didn't produce a whole lot in college either. And Aguilar was relatively similar to that. So it was a class, honestly, riddled with guys that, frankly, didn't produce enough to go as high as they did in the NFL draft. A lot of boom-bust profiles, and this goes to show what you get, which is a lot of times they might show some signs in the NFL, but in general, they end up busting. Yeah, I mean, even Nelson Aguilar, who was going in the latter part of the first round, the the latter, uh, like the three-quarter mark, right around seven, eight, nine. He ended up with 102 NFL starts and he's still going, but he's only produced 2% of the time top five starts, 12% of the time top wide receiver one type starts, and 23% of the time he's a wide receiver two. So that means that the majority of his starts have not been fantasy relevant at all. But you guys, I know that under the helmet did not like Nelson Aguilar. They're like, any wide receiver really except for him. <laughs> yeah, that was one of them. And I remember Philip Dorsett drifting quite a bit yeah. um, in drafts. And 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 one of one of the things was uh Devin Funches. I, I remember being yes. huge on Devin Funches. And frankly, even as of a year or two ago, still thought he was on the map. I remember he opted out, I believe, in 2020. And then he ended up getting hurt uh right away, which which really uh, torpedoed his 2021. And, you know, now, I mean, you got to consider him a complete drifter um, at this point in his career, but he ended up having a, a decent third season uh, that ended up being with, with he had a, a good touchdown rate. He was with Cam Newton at that time in his prime with those, those Carolina teams. But Funches, I still believe was a guy that if he were coming into the NFL today, that he, he probably would have been a tight end, you know, or some sort of, Darren Waller projects shifting over. And I think he would have been better received if he were coming into the NFL, say five years later as a 230 plus pound guy that could move well. But yet he was one that I, I think at wide receiver, a pure traditional wide receiver, a little miscast in the time period he came in. 
And yet, you know, if he was more viewed as an offensive weapon type or someone that maybe put on five to 10 pounds and was viewed more as a tight end, I think there would have been a lot more options and utility and frankly, reasonable upside to come out of that profile that just frankly was not in the cards when he did. And he was another positional convert. We had Devin Funches, who was a tight end in college, convert to wide receiver in the NFL. Darren Waller was a wide receiver in college and converted to tight end in the NFL. So as you mentioned, if Devin Funches would have just stayed as a tight end, it would have been better for his fantasy career, if not his career in general. And uh, one wide receiver that I I do want to highlight because it, it, he, I think is very instructive which is what we always say is as you go down in draft position, frankly, when you go beyond round one, you've got to be super selective in drafting wide receivers in general in rookie drafts. And you know, day two or round two profiles that are really, really good, then you can consider those, absolutely. But those are rare and, and they're not in every single class. But uh, Stefan Diggs was one that really uh, would be one of the few, historically speaking, profiles that, that you would consider from day three. He was a five-star guy and he was pretty much off the radar. He went to Maryland, you know, not necessarily. I mean, that's a huge draw for the Maryland program to get any skill position player that's even a higher four-star guy, let alone Stefan Diggs. And, and Diggs, again, had every single marker of a guy that should be drafted higher than he was. And you shouldn't be surprised if he ends up producing. And he had a sky-high production score. He was young. Again, he had the five-star moniker. He tested reasonably well, but he was very productive. I mean, he had a a monster breakout at 18 years old, two more seasons above age baselines for market share. And then he comes into the NFL at 21 years old, and he still goes barely inside the top 150, buried on day three. And Stefan Diggs produced right away. And you know what? You shouldn't be surprised because he was a phenom in college. He came in and he started producing and kept elevating. And we know how the story has gone. He's still chugging along, um, you know, even after changing teams. So, so Stefan Diggs is that you don't get this profile very often, but we need to keep our coyote ears up because when it does occur, that is the exception to the rule, but one we need to be aware of at wide receiver. Yeah. And he was one of the best values at wide receiver in this class. He and Tyler Lockett, they were both. Uh, Tyler Lockett was end of the second round of rookie drafts. Stefan Diggs was late, late second, early third. And they both have been very productive fantasy-wise. Diggs has the better name and you could trade him for hire, but Tyler Lockett, make no mistake, has been very steady. 11% of the time he's been top five compared to 10% of the time for Stefan Diggs, top five. 20% of the time, Tyler Lockett has been a top 12 and 23% of the time, Stefan Diggs has. 33% of the time, Tyler Lockett's been at least top 24, a wide receiver two, and 46% of the time, Stefan Diggs. So both of them were really, really good values later on in the draft. And as you said, I mean, it, it, you got guys that get overlooked. Uh, I remember Donovan Peoples-Jones, but he didn't have the production. He had the big five-star, but he never had the production in college. Yeah. And so you can't project a guy just because they were a five-star guy. You got to look at the whole package. And Stephon Diggs had that whole package. 
Yeah. And two other things for the wide receiver position. Number one is the boom bust profiles. You got to be careful. Yeah. And this class, this class was loaded with them of guys that tested in the top five, 10, 15% of, of the model's history dating back to the 1990s. So this was a class that was athletic, but yet not a lot of guys that could pair that with quality production. And when in doubt, production pays. Production is is that that uh, that basis point of saying, well, if you were really that athletic and that physically dominant compared to your peers, and frankly, you're probably being covered by guys younger than you by the time you were peaking and exiting college, and yet you still weren't dominant production-wise, what's the deal? I think that's a legitimate question to ask, especially when you're just sort of blending in in terms of your production. And so this class was is a model for that of just, when in doubt, don't take the bait. And when in doubt, take a guy that is just good enough physically, but yet they were dominant as producers. I always say this is a proxy for even if you don't, you're not a scout, you don't know all the nuances of what you're looking for. Look at that production score as basically a proxy for film scouting because they're going to be the guys that do the little things, the positional skills you need, running routes, separating, using their hands, uh, high-pointing the ball, being able to work versus contact, all those things, working in, in, uh, you know, in harmony with the quarterback beyond the scope of the play, all these things that uh, it turns into a production. That's the baseline. So yeah, we can have size and speed and, and three cones and all this type of stuff, but if you didn't produce you're probably either raw or you don't understand any of the other stuff. And yet, if you're a guy, and Jarvis Landry is a good example, and like I said, I mean, Stefan Diggs was not a world-beater athlete, but what did he do? Dominant producer. And Amari Cooper, same thing. He was a he was a good athlete. He wasn't a dominant one. He wasn't Brashad Perriman. He wasn't guys like Chris Conley you know, or Sammy Coates. Those guys didn't produce. They didn't produce. They couldn't use that physical skill set because they could... You know, I'm sure in high school they were just running by guys. Well, at some point you got to run around. At some point you got to tell a story, and you got to beat a defender with nuances. And I think this class is absolutely that. And then, then one other thing is that uh, Devonte Parker is also a guy that will be remembered going forward in the sense that round one guys do not produce that late as an initial. You know, if you haven't produced a top 24 season. Devante Parker is that trend bucker that just does not uh, happen almost ever. And he did it in year five. He was pretty much off the radar in years three and four. A lot of people gave up on him. And, and now in retrospect, two, three years later, he looks like a one hit wonder and he's on track to basically just be that one hit wonder. So the whole moniker of you just keep betting on first rounders at wide receiver it's it's kind of dicey when you get that deep, when you don't break out year three, when you don't break out year four, you go into year four, five, man, it is just, it is like a desert in terms of trying to find that water, trying to find that fantasy starter. So if you hear like, oh, well, Devonte Parker did it, just know that the odds are completely and utterly stacked against you. If you're rhyme and reasoning for betting on a player that still has a reasonable value in the dynasty marketplace in terms of acquisition cost, is well, Devontae Parker did it, or that's that's the uh, the the beacon of light. Just know that that's pretty much the only one in that subset. Yeah, and it, it's the same thing with Kevin White. Kevin White was a one-hit wonder in college. 
And if you watched his film, he could only catch passes on one side of the ball. I can't remember if he was right side of the ball or left side of the ball, but he only ran routes in college on one side of the ball and could only catch passes on that side of the ball. He was fast and he was big, but that one hit wonder and the late age, uh, even though he was drafted quite high, he ended up being the Fugazi in this whole crowd. Like he was a big bust at the 103, 104 yeah. in a non super flex format. And I remember people still loving Kevin White year two, year three. It's like he, he's got all this opportunity. He ended up only playing 23 NFL regular season games. He didn't have any games in the top five, he didn't have any games in the top 12. Like, just complete bust. Well, and I remember a big part of his analysis was just trying to figure out because he was a transfer. So his best season came not at West Virginia and it came, you know, two years removed from when he actually ended up going to the NFL. So he produced a lot less when the competition got higher. And so, so fleecing that out, he was 23, which was an ideal. So he was a relatively unique case, but like you said, the NFL stepped up and obviously it only takes one team in the Chicago bears to do that, but he went seven overall. And I think that was the, that was the part that, that had people diving in. And so if he had faded to the later first round or the second round by the NFL, I think it would have been a lot easier to have more skepticism based on his, his body production track before the NFL. Right. And so that's part of this exercise is just trying to help listeners go back in history, because if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And (laughs) excellent. You know, we're, we're coming up on a 22 class that you and I both think is fairly weak. There's some good guys, but everybody gets rookie fever or most people, most dynasty owners get rookie fever. We're trying to help you just stay grounded. We're giving you the history so that you can see how many hits, how many misses, what we loved going into it. And then who we hung on to because, you know, that juicy dripping upside, but then that upside's not there. When do you finally cut bait? When do you make the trades? Is it, I mean, that's what this is all about. And to be fair, Keep in mind that, and, and again, I listen to NFL Draft podcasts just to keep my my ear to the ground. And I'm sure a lot of Dynasty or or Devi shows also have the theme of generally positivity. So you're going to hear a lot of positive stuff, especially in the NFL Draft circle. If you're listening to, um, you know, a lot of those those mainstream shows that it's a lot about here's what this guy can do here's what you know here's here's the great highlights of this class and so and so is rising and you know we're going to talk about the top guys over and over and over again and and so you're going to get this this echo chamber of positivity but just know that fantasy football not even getting into dynasty but fantasy football is about you know fleecing that out most will fail most will not be fantasy impactful and then you get to dynasty and you say, how do I spend my rookie capital? It's going to take up a roster spot where I could spend it off the waiver wire. I could get more data points and utilize it a different way three months from now. And so to hold that spot with a first or second round rookie pick, especially that you say, I, you know, with that time factor, the stakes go even higher for guys that can play, guys that can provide an impact. So that's one thing I would caution is just, you need to keep that proper perspective. And I, you know, I'm not a, a negative Nelly or anything like that, but I think I have a more level and logical approach just because 
I look at the numbers, I see that there's there's plenty of failures. And if you can kind of have that prism as we go through the process of prospects, whether it's their profile on, on paper or on, on tape, draft position, workouts, all this kind of stuff, they got to prove it to you over and over again that they're worthy of your picks. You don't have limitless picks. You're only going to get a certain number of picks across your leagues in certain zones to even have a chance to draft players. So just keep that in mind that you have a finite amount of capital and resources. And so these players have to earn it for you. You can't just go in and be like, oh yeah, I'll draft a smattering of a lot of different guys who actually proved it to you with their profile throughout college and throughout the draft process to say that they are worthy of your capital. Otherwise, who's to say you end up with zero shares of a lot of guys in each class? Exactly. So, uh, so, so tight actually, well, you know, uh, we have a, we have a notable tight end that's actually part of the wide receiver model, but right, uh, yeah. So, so, so tight end position. Uh, what's the land land here, Katie? All right. So we knew that the tight end class was going to be weak, and the NFL confirmed it. Two guys in the second round, no first round tight ends. Devin Funches was drafted as a tight end by Carolina, forty first overall. Then Max Williams, who made the one one handed catch in college that everybody loved and was like, Oh, we got to have Max Williams. He was in the second round 55th overall to Baltimore. I know you uh, UTH like Clive Walford as probably the best profile third round 68th overall to Oakland, but this was just a bad class and we knew it, you know, Tyler Croft, third round, Jeff Howerman, third round, Blake Bell, fourth round, Michael Pruitt, fifth round, CJ Uzoma, who's done probably the most outside of Darren Waller. But Darren Waller was drafted as a wide receiver in the sixth round and ended up being the best value of this entire draft at the tight end position. But no other tight end has done anything. Yeah. And I think the real problem here, and so I'm going to speak almost in reverse of what uh, wide receiver was because athleticism is really important at tight end. Because if you are just a lagging athlete, even if you produced in college, it's going to be tough for you to be anything higher than a low end tight end one fantasy wise. And that's if you get peppered, you're just not going to have the size movement uh, spectrum to have upside, to move away, to actually average a decent amount per catch, and to have some legitimate upside for fantasy and dynasty. And the top guys, Max Williams, Clive Walford. You mentioned Devin Funches. He was a bit of a uh, a, a bit of a special case there. But the, we knew the, he was going right, to play wide receiver, the, even though he right. was drafted as tight end. The traditional tight ends, though, coming off the board: Max Williams, Clive Walford. Tyler Croft and Jeff Ironman. I mean, those four guys, the only guys at tight end in the top 100, all of them had 35% or lower athleticism scores. So varying levels of production, but these all were basically dog athletes. And so that meant the upside was going to be limited. And sure enough, all of them dreadfully disappointed right away and basically throughout. And, and so, so you know, we, we got some decent athletes on day three. But again, day three tight ends are a complete crapshoot in terms of will they ever get opportunities beyond an ancillary tight end for NFL depth chart purposes. And and sure enough, I mean, guys like, again, Jesse James wasn't that great of an athlete, but he was intriguing in day three. You know, guys like James O'Shaughnessy bounce around, Nick O'Leary bounce around. So that's the problem. 
that very few day three tight ends get much opportunity, the George Kittles of the world, to actually develop into a starter. And so you have to lean on those top guys in terms of potentially spending rookie picks. And all of them in this class were pretty poor athletes for the starter. Yep. And uh, it showed. It was just, it. everybody knew it, whether you were tight end premium right. or not. And I remember most people were disciplined. There weren't any tight ends that were being just, uh, there were no first round tight ends in rookie drafts if it was start one and not tight end premium. And even in tight end premium, guys like Max Williams and the others, they weren't going until mid second. You want to take a you want to take a guess, Katie, on you take Darren Waller out of it, who again changed positions and had a uh, just remind folks, I mean, a really bumpy road where he was pretty much for the first three years off the radar. Yeah. And so, and I remember he, he was suspended once or twice yep. and yep. he changed teams Off-field and then he, and then it was one spring. He was on everybody's waiver wire. People would pick him up. I think it was in the May, June timeframe when he was working out at tight end and it was, it was during uh, OTAs or something like it was, it was just a random point in the calendar and he people started to pick him up on spec. He ended up being a big breakout. And now we, you know, we know the story as it continues on into his thirties now, but do you want to take a guess, Katie, with no Darren Waller, who was, who had the highest single season in terms of adjusted points per game finish of this doldrum class? Uzoma. Uh, yes, CJ Uzama. And and second was actually Tyler Croft. Okay. Which just goes to show you. I mean, Uzama has been, unless you play two tight end, Uzama has been sparsely on people's radar. And Tyler Croft, I mean, talk about a a, a deep pick him up every once in a while if he's if he's relevant, streaming special in deeper leagues, or if you're totally desperate. I mean, that's been some of the best stuff we've had from this class. It's unbelievable how how much they struggled uh, to to really produce much of anything. And again, Darren Waller, just a reminder. Again, he changed. He was either on the waiver wire or changed teams two, three, four times before he actually turned into the fantasy stud that we know now. Yeah. It, it was definitely just a bad, bad class. And then quarterback should be quick too, because we knew it was a weak class going in and there was big question mark between Jameis Winston or Marcus Mariota for the one-on-one and Superflex. And Jameis Winston had the more prototypical NFL. He was the one uh, overall pick to Tampa Bay. Marcus Mariota ended up going second overall to Tennessee and then we had a second a drought until the third round. No second round picks, only two in the first round. Garrett Grayson and Sean Mannion were the two third round picks, but there were not high hopes for them. The only high hopes for Garrett Grayson was because he was New Orleans Saints, possibly Drew Brees and his age at that time. Would he be the, you know, sit behind him for a couple of years before he takes over the job? So in Superflex, he remained decent value for a while, just on the fact that he was with New Orleans. Sean Mannion had an opportunity with the St. Louis Rams, but Bryce Petty, round four, Brett Hundley, round five, Trevor Simeon, round seven, and that was it. There weren't a lot of quarterbacks taken in the 2015 class. And I remember the big knocks on Marcus Mariota. He was a running quarterback. He had a decent arm but he always did everything from the shotgun. Would he be able to handle under center? 
needed, exactly. needed to find stuff and, a, and a, a cohesive system. Now on paper, again, everything checked out there. He threw, he had a great touchdown interception ratio. He ran a lot. As you mentioned, he had good size, but like you said, they're just in terms of those synapses firing and having a lot of those get through your reads, uh, finding your checkdowns and, and navigating uh, murky pockets and, and all of that in the NFL. That was what he definitely struggled with. And ultimately, you know, now we saw him fell out of favor from getting a lot of starter opportunities, at least until now. Um, and with Winston, it was the not a great athlete uh, in terms of like for a guy that really didn't test well and and you wouldn't identify as a runner. He, he has a way of finding yards. It's almost comical in some of these scrambles that he's had over the years, but he was one. It's interesting. A lot of times you see these guys that they throw an inordinate number of interceptions when you look at that TDINT ratio in college. And sure enough, it ends up being an issue in some capacity in the NFL. And for Winston, we've seen that travel with him from Florida State uh, to the NFL. Uh, I really think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him going forward, just because, uh, you know, he had the, the eye surgery. He also got uh, a reclamation tour going to Sean Payton, taking more time, seeing some starter opportunities in that system that, that we saw him play some of his best ball of his career uh, this past year, albeit in a limited sample size with his injury. But, uh, but, but yeah, with Winston and with a few of these other guys like, like Mannion and, um, and, and Garrett Grayson of this class, uh, just you see some of these death knells of, of uh, touchdown interception ratio, and it has a way of continuing in the NFL. Right. One of the things James Winston had against him was, and it's also a positive and a negative at the same time. James Winston was a baseball pitcher. And when you finally, and he was a pitcher in college. So when you finally stop playing the other sport, then you can surge at the sport that you're dedicated to, which is now football. However, the off season is so short and you got to be a really hardworking dude to be able to overcome the bad habits that you have from that other sport and baseball pitching, the arm motion for pitching is completely different than for playing quarterback. And a lot of people think, yeah, but you're, you're a strong thrower of the ball either way. True, but there's still many mechanical differences between the two positions. And so I think that this last couple of years where he wasn't the starter and got a chance to sit and learn for the Saints, he looked he looked a lot better, I think, and he's getting older and wiser. I really think he could be in a, in for a resurgence whether it's with Pittsburgh or one of these other quarterback needy teams, or maybe he stays with the saints, but he is available as a free agent. This could be very interesting. I don't know that Marcus Mariota gets another gig. And I remember at the time, like big, big toss up, you go Jameis Winston or do you go Mariota? And I was more of a Winston over Mariota type of gal. And I think, I think UTH was leaning Winston over Mariota too. end of the day. 83 starts, 19% of the time as a top five quarterback compared to 11% for Mariota. 42% of the time he's been at QB1, 35% for Mariota. And 81% of the time, Chad, 81% of the time, Jameis Winston has at least in a super flex given you QB2 numbers. Mariota, 57% of the time. So even if Mariota does get a resurgence, which I don't know that he will, 
and that's the dicey thing when it comes to quarterbacks. Making it through that first rookie contract is a big thing. And Jameis has struggled, but I think he I think he's due for for that resurgence. Yeah, and and everyone talks about Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson and some of these trades that could be going on or 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 incumbent quarterbacks on the move. However, Winston's out there and and he is the actual available sign with anybody player that is most interesting at the position to me. It's it's thin and frankly it it always will be and should be um, and a week of the full on exactly. In Exactly. So, so like you mentioned with Pittsburgh or a number of other teams, Jameis Winston on this rebound and reclamation tour that he's been on for, you know, basically since he, uh, since he wasn't uh, the starter in Tampa that uh, again, he is hyper interesting to me just because if he, we've already seen the big play potential, the strong arm, he's thrown a number of touchdowns. He's produced with good weapons or with just above average weapons. And so if, if he just gets the interceptions under control a little bit, did, did he actually learn something from Drew Brees, from Sean Payton, from being humbled and going into a backup, going into a, I need to learn and analyze my own game because now I'm not playing. I'm not throwing 550, 600 passes a year. I'm throwing almost none. <laughs> so it's all... Uh, cerebral, it's all on the practice field and it's all internal, not on Sundays. So I just think that it can go one way or the other. And Jameis Winston, to me, strikes me as a leader and a worker and a guy that that's not going to torpedo him mentally or commitment wise and turn him into a paycheck collector from this point in his career. And he can just sit and be the backup and sporadically play. But he strikes me as a guy that that is going to take that to heart and say, this is my second career coming um, almost like a Ryan Tannehill who recreated himself. And it's almost like, uh, you know, shedding a skin. And now I'm a new, and, and I, I, I think Jameis Winston is one that uh, while he was a punchline at times, you know, going 30 for 30 and, and things like that. And just, you know, these, these games where he would fall behind by three touchdowns and then lead them back. <laughs> but he's the one that, that created that deficit to begin with that, uh, you know, especially I, I'm really excited about possibilities like Pittsburgh, where you say the infrastructure is there, the weapons are there. And now if you get a little spruced up and shined up version of Jameis Winston, uh, that, that's just, you know, that half a tier better than what he was at, at Tampa Bay. I think that's a pretty exciting proposition. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm excited uh, for the series to continue next week with the 2016 class Hopefully this is a great exercise for the listeners, especially those who may not have been playing dynasty for very long. I know that for myself, it, it keeps things in perspective. So I really, I'm really enjoying this Chad. Yeah. And, and seeing, you know, where, what can we learn from uh, the, these previous classes? Because so many times when we're in it in the current year, it's easy to let some of these principles go by the wayside. And, and we, we get enamored with certain players and they're the exception, and, but I really like them. And, and I think just some of the generalities that, that we talk about, about how you know, following, what is the NFL trying to tell us? What were the general profiles like in this specific classes? Are we going to make exceptions to rules? Like All these things are of paramount importance. And, and that's why looking at things like the boom-bust profiles, 
the the round one or highly drafted running backs? You know, were there good athletes at tight end? All these key questions. And I think, you know, tight end might be one that we find some similarities uh, to the 2015 class this coming year where we may not have a tight end drafted in the top 35 or 40. We may not have a, a strong enough athlete high up on the board to say there's legitimate fantasy starter upside from these types of profiles. So we always try to spin it forward. We always try to learn those lessons. And uh, again, for the third week in a row and more to come here, thanks to Katie for for putting this uh, series together and for putting together a lot of the information that you've heard on this show, talking about these classes in retrospect uh, for 2015 this week, 2016 coming up next week. You can find her between episodes. You want to talk Dynasty, you want to talk Devi, uh, you want to talk about anything about your team builds, absolutely do that at ff underscore scholar 399 i am at chad parsons nfl over there on twitter as well reminder if you like shows like this one you want to hear premium shows you want to hear things about prospects right now there's a draft series uh, excuse me a dynasty trade series going on it's about eight episodes in and i think the total is going to be 11 or 12 in this series building your toolbox this goes beyond players it goes beyond profiles but how do you navigate your trading dynamic in your leagues, because regardless of of what your setting is, you need to have the tools specific to maybe if you're a strong team, a weak team, is it shallow format, deep format, an active league, maybe it's a quiet league, all these types of dynamics that you need specific skills to enhance your possibilities to improve your team through Dynasty Trading. So I would like to highlight that. As always, the Dynasty Trade Calculator over at UTH is updated. You've got the big board that has already been updated. Obviously, it's going to be updated throughout the process, post-combine, post-pro days, and post-NFL draft as well. So until next week, never settle, refuse to be average, and keep building those dynasties. Chad actually said... Doug, sell me on Cooper. <laughs> That's right. I sell Chad on Cooper. And I picked early. I picked early. That's true. And again, my argument is it was a start two league full PPR for running backs. That's always your argument. For Gurley? Yes, yes. it is. He's going to be worth a goddamn truckload. You have no idea what he's going to So is be. Cooper. Is he? Yes. I'm telling you, the moment Gurley has a week of like 150 total yards and a touchdown or two, you can trade him for anything you want. And I'm again, Cooper will get close to there, but I just don't think it's going to be this year. The moment a rookie running back starts to put up numbers like I believe Gurley will in the second half of the season, you can trade it for whatever you want. Look at Trent Richardson. He didn't even look that good doing it a few years ago. He was the number one overall player because he was 22. He had a job. He caught passes and he had high pedigree. Gurley's going to have all those things, but he's going to look better doing it. I'm telling you. It's you potato don't have to buy- potato. You don't have to buy into Gurley five years from now. I'm telling you, he's going to be worth a fortune and a fortune faster than Amari Cooper is my argument. So I say if it's start two running backs or more, you take Gurley. Again, if it's one, I can totally get on board with taking Cooper. I'm going to throw out a prediction. A bold one. Bold right. one. Amari Cooper and Todd Gurley are both going to be first round startup picks next year. That's not bold, but okay. Okay, so so if it's not bold, then how is he going to be worth a truckload more than Cooper? 
I'm making the argument that, again, I'm kind of leaving Cooper out of it. Wide receivers are crowded. Yeah, true or false? The top of the wide receiver board, the top what? Whatever it is for you, if it's 5, if it's 10, if it's 15, there's a big group of talented horses. And we have a bunch of those guys that are 25, 26, 27 right now. So everyone wants them still. In two or three years, that won't be the case. But right now, it's packed with guys in their prime or coming into their prime or rookies. Running back. Tell me who Gurley is competing with right now to be considered the number one overall running back. Well, Le'Veon Bell, obviously, right? That's pretty much it, though, right? Well, Frank Gore. Right, of course, Frank Gore. But, but I mean, there's T.J. Yeldon. I mean, there's guys that you can say, okay, young, they have talent, some pedigree, and they're going to have the panache if they produce. And that whole combination of things to be, you know, a legitimate first-round startup pick. There's not that many. There really isn't. No, there's not. If Devonte Freeman goes out and, you know, is the lead guy and, and stuff, and he's still not going to be a first-round startup thing. I can't see any way for him to do that. No. So there's tons of jobs in the NFL, like LaShawn McCoy. I mean, there's tons of jobs that they, they can't get back to the first round. It's over. Okay, so but here's a question. If Gurley's the number one running back, what's the lowest he could go in startups? He's the number one, top five. Top five is the lowest, right? Yeah. So all, and like you said, pretty much the stiffest competition is Le'Veon Bell. That's all. That's that's his competition. But we have to consider the injury history. We have but to. You're po- but you're pointing it out as if he's going to get hurt this year. All I'm, I'm saying, saying is that. a couple good games. You can get whatever you want. He's already considered the 101 consensus by most people out there. So it doesn't. It just takes showing a little bit, and people are going to go, "Yep, confirms everything," and they're yep. going to buy in. For running backs, people buy in a lot faster. People are skeptical of Odell Beckham right now. Wide receivers, there's a little more artistry and massaging that statue. With running backs, they pretty much see it. They know they need it. And especially if they can catch passes, they're all over it. And and Gurley, I just see that happening. And it probably will. It probably will. It probably will. <laughs> we we're going to do five minutes on it, but but I'm still going to I think I'm this is still going to take the. I'm still going to take know you are. the safer asset. Amari Cooper is. I got it. The well, most you're thinking of owning. Receiver. You're thinking of owning seen, Cooper till the end of time, right? You're thinking of drafting him now, and I'm just going to. I mean, he's going to break my rule of 29. Like when he's 29, I'm going to sell him because I love him so much. He's going to break my own rule. How just, dare you? How dare you throw out Matt Jones? Who said I was a fan of Jameis Winston? I did. Kevin White is my boy. At least Quentin Patton was productive. Oh, take that, Philip Dorsett. Can you imagine how many Tyler Lockett you could trade John Brown for today? Three. Three? <laughs> you just, oh, Johnny on the spot, you're like, three. It's three. Not two and a half, not three and a half. It's three. People talked about him going above, you know, Cooper and Gurley and stuff in in late August. You don't understand. So ridiculous. He was it. He was earmarked. He was going to be a high running back two at worst. And then the starters started playing. And then the then worst, the NFL of the worst happened. Started. And then he's like, he might as well just throw the ball to his coach on the sidelines when he gets it on a handoff. Pretty much. Or just hand it to a defender. Here you go, sir. Oh, were you looking well, for this? How may I help you? How may I be of service? Would you like fries with that, sir? Yes. Oh, here is the pink skin you were looking for. 
Who's your 2022 right. David Johnson? Right. And I was like, well, he's in seventh grade right now. This guy, I don't, you know, he's got some off the field issues. He broke <laughs> up with his girlfriends. And I think, you know, he, there's that, I, that pregnancy scare he had behind the bleachers. I heard he's been rolling doobies. Yeah, I heard he got he got kicked out of PE the other day for not, you know, wearing the shorts with his name on them. At this time last year, was David Johnson really in your database like yes, that? Yes, he was. Yes, and he was. were you sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, Yes, I was waxing man. my mustache. I was. There it really isn't one. There isn't a David Johnson uh, small school running back for 2016. We have seen a good Yet. one with Jarek McKinnon. No, there isn't. Yet. There, no, there isn't. Yet. I'm looking at the metrics right now, Doug. There is not. As you said, if you're only if you're going to defend a player for for what they do, I guess they should start playing a safety over the top of David Johnson. No need for Viagra. All I have to do is think about David Johnson. If you want to talk about a guy who who's definitely a follower from the draft, Thomas Rawls definitely took a shot. But can which, it, t- which time they drafted somebody? Yeah, yeah but the fifth by the by the fifth running back. My Trey Madden coming that were, Rawls of yeah. finally said, "Okay, I, I think guess. there's a message here." Okay. Yeah. I get it. I've been overlooking him this whole time. Yeah. And now he's I was a believer since he was 18. Right, I can't believe how talented this guy is. I mean, I never, I never got off that bandwagon. And then you see in a rookie draft that they were drafting like 111, and they pass on him. Metrics, heart, Zach, et cetera. All right, so first one, I'm just going to throw you a softball. Jameis Winston, you think he's going to be a buck? I think he's going to go to the Lions. Oh, boy. And he's the same age I like my scotch. He's 21. <laughs>